0: Uh, So if you have Bibles, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look at verses 30 through 30, or sorry, 30 through 46, and I I didn't bring my slides over, uh, so I would encourage you just to leave your Bibles open. We're going to just work right through the passage tonight, but let me first begin by, by reading. Dr. Hook keeps telling me that I'm going to have to wear my glasses up here eventually, but I don't have to yet. So, but it definitely, good thing is nice big words here. Okay, hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus and his disciples had sung a hymn, after leaving the upper room where Christ established the Lord's Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we know that to understand your word requires your spirit to take these words and apply them to our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would behold the manifold glories of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, one of my personal character flaws is that I, I like things done a, a certain way. And uh, and I'm willing to do it myself to make sure it gets done a certain way. So if my wife were here, uh, she would tell you that when it comes to certain foods, I, I'd rather just cook them myself because I want them to all be done in a certain way. Where my, my wife is more somebody who's like, look, I got five kids to feed plus you. I, it's a win if I get food on the table. I also, I have certain clothes that I want washed, and I want uh, hung in a certain way, and, uh, and so I end up doing that myself because I'm just kind of neurotic, really. Uh, if one of my children comes up to me, and if I'm doing a project, and they say, Dad, can I help? Uh, my instant reaction, and God has given me grace in this, but if I'm honest, my instant reaction is, you know, I'll look at the five hours of work in front of me and I'll think, well, I don't want your incompetent hands on any of this. So, uh, no, I, I don't need your help. Uh, I've come to love and value uh, their incompetence and working with them. Uh, but if I'm honest, that's my, that's my initial reaction. And so you may not be as neurotic as me with this, but I, I imagine to some degree uh, what I've said uh, resonates with you. Uh, Because the more important something is to us, the harder it is to trust uh, someone else with it. The more important something is to us, the more invested we are in in a certain outcome. The more inclined we are then to stay in control, to micromanage, to do it ourselves. And believe it or not, we do this with our salvation. We might be okay with Jesus dying for our sins, of course we can't pay that price, but do we really need to depend on him every moment of every single day for the rest of our lives? How many of us have gone through seasons, or maybe even we're in a season, where we're tempted to live our Christian life, where we say to Jesus, thanks for saving me, but I got it from here. Are we really in such a desperate situation with our sin that we cannot live without Him? Are we really so weak and foolish and sinful that we must constantly soak ourselves in His Word and prayer lest we fall into temptation? And the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. And typically, uh, Jesus has to bring things into our life that we can't handle uh, to teach us this truth. But one of the other ways he convinces us of this is by showing us himself, showing us that he understands our weakness He sympathizes with our weakness. He extends infinite grace and mercy to sinners just like us. And then he proves himself worthy of our trust and our worship. And that's what we see in Christ tonight. I have three points to the sermon, but the way I have it divided up is two main points. And the second point, there's two sub-points. So, I feel like I have to explain it a little more clearly without my slides. But the first point is uh, do not trust in yourselves. Do not trust in yourselves. The second point is instead trust in Jesus. So, don't trust in yourself. Instead, trust in Jesus. Why? Because he is human and because he is the perfect human. So, that's our outline for tonight. Uh, So right before our passage was the story of the last Passover, which I imagine in this crowd here, you're uh, mostly familiar with that. That's where Jesus gives us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to feed our faith. And before he instituted the Lord's Supper, he told them all, tonight one of you will betray me. And what is fascinating about that scene is instead of defending themselves, as we would, or accusing one another, They all came up to him and said, Is it I, Lord? Am I the one who will betray you? Every one of them was afraid they were the ones who might betray him. They all took the warning very seriously, except, of course, Judas. And the reason the rest of the disciples took it seriously is is that's because that's what true believers do with warnings from scripture we we take them seriously and actually God uses the warnings to drive us back to Christ for our assurance so after Judas leaves he comforts the disciples by giving them the bread which is broken right it's the sign of his body broken for us he gives them the wine which is the sign of his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins and then he promises them that one day he will drink this wine again with them in the kingdom of his father. And he leaves them with great hope and assurance after this scene. And, oh, hold on. That's my phone. He, he leaves them with great hope and assurance after this scene. And then immediately afterward, we we're told <clears throat> that when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. That's where Gethsemane is located. Um, According to the Gospel of John, it's a place where Jesus went often with his disciples, which is probably why Judas knows to find them there later on, on this night. They sing a hymn. I was customary to sing Psalm 115 to 118 uh, following the Passover, and so that's likely what they did. And then we're told in verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So before, when they were in the upper room, he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. Uh, And they took that warning very seriously. But now he tells them on this very night, every single one of them is going to fall away. And that word translated fall away means to stumble into sin. And then he gives them two reasons why they're going to stumble into sin. Because of me and because it is written. And it's written in the book of Zechariah that God himself would strike the Messiah, or the shepherd, with his own sword, and as a result, the sheep would scatter. And that is what is about to happen. God himself is going to strike Jesus, even though Judas, and the chief priests, and the elders are all plotting this plot to have Jesus killed and put to death. The truth is that this is the plan that God has laid out, that he's predestined to take place. Uh, Isaiah tells us that it is the Lord who has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul tells us that it was God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So God is the one who will strike the shepherd, and when he does, the sheep will all stumble into sin. You see, these disciples like us, don't really know just how weak and sinful they are. They have no idea how much they need Jesus. They are weak and sinful, and no weak and sinful human being could possibly be prepared to stand firm in what they're about to face on this night. Uh, which is why they will also stumble because of Jesus. They're not ready to accept what is about to happen to him. Is your roof okay here? (laughs) Uh, Get the deacons on that. Um, But thankfully, uh, the the theme verse is is Matthew 121 of this book, right? That Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And so thankfully we know that Jesus came to save the disciples from their sins. We were told in chapter twenty. Uh, that Jesus came not to serve, but, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so because of that, he tells them in verse 32 <clears throat> that after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So even though they're all going to fall away on this night and scatter when he's arrested and crucified, here he is promising them that he's going to rise from the dead. And when he does, he's going to gather them together again. And like the good shepherd... He's going to lead them. But right now, they, they can't hear that. When they were still in the upper room, they heard his words and they feared the warning. But this time, it's just a little too personal. It's one thing to say that one of you will betray me. It's quite another to say that all of you are going to fall away. And so they get a little defensive at this point. And then Peter answered him in verse 33, Though they all fall away because of you, I never will fall away. And the reason we all love Peter is because he says the thing that everybody else is thinking, right? He's the he's the saying the quiet part out loud guy. And and we love him because he's just like us. He's sincere, he's well-intentioned. Uh he's not like Judas. He truly does love Jesus. His spirit is willing. He just happens to also be foolish and prideful and to not be aware of just how sinful he actually is. And so Jesus, who is the very word of God, tells him plainly that he is going to fall away tonight. And no matter how sincere we are, no matter how much we love Jesus, God's word is still more true than what we think and what we feel. It's so easy for us to place our sincere beliefs about what feels true to us over what God's word actually says, which is what Peter is doing right here. He is genuine in his, sincer- in his sincerity, in his real love for Jesus, but in so doing, he actually ignores Jesus' very words. And he thinks he's better than he is, he thinks he's better than his friends. A modern example of this would be, uh, and I know I'm preaching to the choir with this this application in an evening service, but a, a modern example of this would be when God says that it, it is right to gather with the church every Sunday. Don't give up the meeting together. And the reason, if you look in the context of Hebrews chapter 10, where that verse comes from, the reason is, is because we're so weak and sinful That if we don't continue to meet together, we are surely going to stumble into sin. But out of sincerity and good intention, we say things like, Oh, I don't have to go to church to maintain my relationship with God. Do you see how that's exactly the same thing? When we say that, we think we're better than we are, we think we're better than other people who have to come to church every Sunday. And here's where I think we all struggle with this. We, we sometimes think that we can play with sin. We can watch sin on TV and not fall into temptation. We think we can love the world and the things of the world without it affecting our love for God. We think we're okay because we sincerely love Jesus. Because of that, we end up trusting ourselves and ignoring what God's word clearly says about such things. Because we think we're better than we are, and we think we're better than other people. Thanks for saving me, Jesus, but I've got it from here. Um, We're just like 75% of Americans who believe they're smarter than the average American. Right? So Peter, with his distorted view of his abilities and his weakness, goes from being afraid to overconfident in less than an hour. But thankfully, to those who are afraid, like Peter and the disciples were in the upper room, he says, here is my body broken for you. And to those who are overconfident, he says, you're going to fall into sin, which is exactly what he says to Peter right now. He says, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So when Jesus says, truly I say to you, this is essentially thus saith the Lord, right? Jesus doesn't have to take an oath in order to, uh, to solemnly speak words of truth like this. He just simply says, truly I say to you, not only will you, Peter, stumble into sin, uh, but it's going to be a great sin. You're going to deny me three times, and you're not even going to realize it until you hear the rooster crow, and once you do, you will know what you have done. But in this moment, Peter can't hear it, neither can the rest of the disciples. And what's fascinating is Jesus seems to just let it go. Like sometimes a child needs to touch the hot stove to learn that stoves are hot. In the same way, sometimes we must stumble into sin uh, to learn what sinners we actually are. And in so doing, we prove that we cannot save ourselves, we need a Savior to save us from our sin, which means saving us from the penalty of our sin, but also every day, moment by moment, saving us from the power of sin. So, we should not trust in ourselves because we should trust in Jesus, right? And the reason we should trust in Jesus, my first sub-point is because he is human. Uh, Now, the fact that Jesus is human is all over the Gospels. Uh, He's born of a woman, he grows up from being a baby into a child, into a man, just like a human. He eats food, he sleeps, he gets tired and hungry, he weeps. All of these things prove his humanity. Uh, when he's in the wilderness for 40 days, he, he uh, is tempted by Satan and he experiences that as a human, right? It's his, his desire for food that Satan tries to tempt him with. It's his desire uh, for glory that he tempts him with. But he's also God. He interprets Scripture by saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, as if he is God. He has power over nature and demons and disease. He knows the future, right? He, he knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows the disciples are going to stumble into sin this night. He is God with all the characteristics and power of God. And he is a man with all the characteristics and weakness of a man. We don't usually think of Jesus as being weak, but humanity is weak compared to God. And Jesus has taken on humanity. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see his humanity on display. Look at verses 36 through 38. Matthew writes, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So Gethsemane means oil press. Uh, He's on the Mount of Olives in the garden called oil press. Likely this is an olive orchard. And like any human about to face the most difficult moment in his life, he wants his three closest friends with him. So they leave the rest of the disciples. They go farther in with Peter, James, and John. And that's just like us, right? When, when, when you go through very difficult times, you want your closest companions with you. Because we're human. We're weak. We can't do it alone. And so for Jesus, the way... Of what he's about to experience, experience is pressing in on him. And we're told they began to be sorrowful and troubled. And as is often the case, these are two English words that don't really capture the breadth of everything that's being said here in Greek. That word for troubled uh, could also mean a deep grief and distress. And the word for, um, sorry, that was sorrowful, means deep grief and distress. The word for troubled could also mean anxious. Right, so he's deeply grieved. He's distressed. He's anxious. And he, and he basically says, I feel like I'm going to die. So just imagine going up to your closest friends, telling them, hey, this is, this is going to be the worst night of my life. I just need you to be with me uh, because I'm so distressed and anxious that I feel like I'm going to die. How would you expect them to respond? You'd expect them to say, oh yeah, Jesus, whatever you need. I'll be with you all night long. And so going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here he is. He's about to do the thing that he left heaven to do, the thing that he took on humanity to accomplish. And he's asking his father who is in heaven, if it's possible for him not to go through with it. Just a second ago, he was telling his disciples that it is written that God will strike the shepherd. So Jesus knows God's word cannot be broken. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he knows God's word doesn't change, and yet he's here pleading with God for there to be another way. And then it gets even more complicated, because Jesus is God. In the Gospel of John, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. God is never divided within himself. God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they share the same will. They're one God with one will, one purpose, always. They never desire something different from one another. And yet here is Jesus with his full humanity on display, wanting there to be another way. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' will is not to drink the cup. (laughs) His will is for it to pass from him. This is mind-boggling for me, that Jesus is so fully human that he desires something in this moment other than what God the Father desires. There are scholars who are are critical of the Bible, and they read stories like Jonah and Jesus feeding the 5,000, and they say, oh, those things could never have happened, way too miraculous. But those same scholars, when they read this story, guess what they say? Oh yeah, that happened. That happened. The story of a man on the verge of being crucified and crying out to God in anguish for, their, for there to be another way. They believe this story. Because Jesus is so human. And so what are we to make of this story? Especially if you think about it, we have Stories from church history of martyrs who are being burned at the stake, singing hymns. And yet here is Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, pleading with God for there to be another way. Luke tells us in this point that he's actually sweating blood because he's so anxious. And so how can someone so human save us? On one hand, it's great to know that your hero is just like you. On the other hand, it's quite scary to recognize that your hero is just like you because you need a hero who can save you, right? And so the answer to this question is because he's also God and because he's perfect. He is a sinless human. And so he is like us in every way. And yet here in the Garden of Gethsemane, more than any other place, we see that he is just like us. He is one of us, but without sin. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews says this, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this verse puzzled me. Actually, almost until I studied for this sermon. Because how how can how can Jesus, who's never sinned, how can he how can he understand what it is like to be tempted like me? Think about it. When um, when somebody is trying to get off drugs and alcohol, and they look for a sponsor, right, to help them with you know their addiction, they they look for one who's also been addicted to drugs and alcohol, because that person can sympathize. With what they're going through. And so you wonder how can how can Jesus, who's never sinned, sympathize with me and my weakness? And the answer to that question is Jesus in the garden. Because he knows what it's like for every bone in his body to be screaming for something different than the will of God. But unlike us, Jesus will say, Not my will, but yours be done. See, this is why we can't trust ourselves, because the truth is, is when every bone in our body is screaming for something other than the will of God, that's a pretty, that's a pretty difficult thing uh, to deny ourselves in the moment, right? Also, by nature, our hearts are deceitful. We're like the disciples, we're foolish and proud, left to ourselves. We think what we feel and what we think is more true than God's word. We think we're better than we are. And Jesus knows what it's like to be us because he is human. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. But he is the perfect human, which is our final point. And we see that because in this scene, he still trusts God's word more than what he is feeling in this moment. That's the part that's so amazing to me, is that he entrusts himself to God in spite of of what his heart is crying out for in this moment. Now there are many things weighing Jesus down in the garden. First, Judas is betraying him. Uh, He knows his closest friends are going to leave him. Uh, He's going to die one of the most painful deaths that human beings have ever come up with. But before that, he's going to be falsely accused in a sham trial. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be drugged through the streets with no clothes and carrying that cross. And as bad as all that's going to be, that's not even the worst part. The worst part is that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, is going to become sin. Which is another thing I'm not sure I fully understand. But I'm going to take a stab at it. So Paul in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5 says this, he says, For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So have you ever done something that you told yourself, either I'm never going to do again, or I'm just never going to do. And then, and then once we've sinned in that way, there's this kind of sick feeling as we we become sin, right? We, We realize that we are sinners. Jesus never had that experience. But on the cross, He takes our sin on His shoulders. He will be sin. He will be identified with sinners in such a way that somehow our stain of sin is placed on Him. Now, now think about it. If, if you've never sinned, there's this infinite holiness that he has. And so to have our stain of sin placed on him would almost be an infinite stain of sin. Right? <clears throat> when Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were ashamed and guilty and wanted to hide and cover themselves, and Jesus never experienced that. But somehow on the cross, he bears our shame. And he bears our guilt. But not only that, when he says, let this cup pass from me, uh, he's pointing to the cup he will drink in our place. Psalm 11 says this, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup oh, I don't want that cup. Later in Psalm 75, we read this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That sounds terrible. Isaiah calls this the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah calls it the cup of the wine of his wrath. And Ezekiel says that this cup is so deep and large that it's it's filled with horror and desolation. Wow. And just in case we might think that's just the Old Testament, in Revelation we read this. Uh, Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Whoa. So because Jesus is about to experience hell, the hell that we deserve, as he drinks the cup of God's wine, This is why the Catechism talks about how Jesus descended into hell, right? In the book of Matthew, he describes hell as weeping and darkness and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is somehow about to know exactly what that is like. And so on the cross, the eternal Son of God, in whom the Father is well-pleased, who's always been in the light and presence of God, will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if you think about it, Of course Jesus wants there to be another way. Of course. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be the sinless Son of God and to be about to become sin? To be the sinless Son of God and to be about to drink down the cup of God's wrath, down to the dregs, which is the end of the cup. He is so fully human that He desires something different than God the Father, and yet He is the perfect human who can stare into the cup of the wine of God's wrath and still say, not as I will, but as you will. And do you know what this means? It means you can trust him. More than what you think or feel. Because he did this for you, if you believe. In verses 40 and 41, we're told, After his agony, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he comes back after pleading with his friends to stay up with him. And they couldn't even stay up an hour with him. He tells them to watch and pray then. So they may not enter into temptation. They should have prayed, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray that because our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. Right? Our sincerity is not enough. And what's interesting here is the temptation they're facing is not the temptation necessarily to fall asleep. It's, it's the temptation that's about to come to them when Jesus is arrested and crucified and they fall away. Right? Jesus is giving them the formula to, to be prepared for when that moment comes, and yet they sleep instead. And then we read in verse 42 again, For the second time he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And you can almost sense a little bit of resignation here, a little bit of resolve, right? Jesus doesn't ask for there to be another way. He simply says, if, he, if the cup cannot pass unless he drinks it, Your will be done. And then again, he comes and he finds them sleeping. Verse 43. Of course, they're sleeping. They're tired. They're sinners. They need a savior. And now Jesus is alone because he must do this alone. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See... The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So Jesus has watched and prayed that he might not fall into temptation. The hour is at hand. The disciples are going to have to sleep later. God has heard Jesus' prayer, not by granting him another way, but by strengthening him to endure everything that will happen from this moment on. So trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus who came to save you from your sins. Trust in Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. Trust his words more than what you think and what you feel. Trust him that you really are more weak and sinful and foolish than you ever imagined, and that on your own you will stumble into sin. And so you must live a life of watching and praying and yes, 100% Jesus is our example here. He does give us a pattern for how to deal with temptation. But here's what struck me the most here. Is in this scene more than anything, Jesus is our object of faith. <laughs> He's the one that we can trust. How many times have we failed in the face of temptation and yet Jesus never did. Adam failed in the temptation in the garden and Jesus passed the test. And his temptation in the garden. And so we can take all of our weakness and all of our sinfulness. And we can look to Christ. And we can trust that he has obeyed in our place. And that his victory in this garden was a victory that belongs to us as sinners who believe and trust in him. Amen. And he is the one that we can trust in every single day. He's the one who, when he knows his disciples are going to betray him, he encourages them by telling them, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. I'm going to gather you together again. And that is the same thing for us. When we fall into sin, we have a Savior who's going to gather us together again and go before us. But he's going before us, or has gone before us, into the kingdom of his Father, where we will join him, right? Which is why we all long to see Jesus as well. So let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for Christ and all that he's done, grateful that he is